Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Is there such a thing as the British way of war? And if there is, what is it? Where does it originate from? Who established it? And how has it informed British strategy throughout recent history? I'm your host, James Rogers, and here on the Warfare Podcast, we invited Professor Andrew Lambert to provide us with so many answers to these questions. Andrew is an expert on this topic. He is the author of a new book called The British Way of War, and this fascinating work explains how a strategist's ideas, that is Julian Corbett, were ignored in 1914, proved critical throughout the Second World War, and continue to shape British military thinking today. I know you're going to love this one, so drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, because it really helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history. But here now is Andrew Lambert on the British Way of War. Enjoy. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks, James. Where are you talking to us from in the world? I'm in Kew in London. I'm about 300 metres or just over 300 yards in Old English measure from the National Archives. I mean, do you perpetually stand there waiting for it to open so you can get in there and write your next book or do you actually live there? I actually live in Kew, which is one of those kind of accidental slightly less accidental you might imagine situations we've lived here for 30 odd years and i don't go in the national archives as often as you might imagine (laughs) (laughs) but i would say living close to kew is a well a great place and you being there right now is a great place for us to start to talk about this notion of a, a british way of war seeing as it's within those archives that there are so many documents that pertain to the british war fighting throughout history so perhaps you could take us through a little bit of the history of this notion because there's been many incarnations of this idea of a British way of war. The the ones that pop to mind for me are Sir Basil Little Hart's book on the British way in warfare in 1932, Lawrence Friedman's article on alliance and the British way in warfare in 2009. Where does your exploration of the British way of warfare start? I think it's important that we see British approaches to warfare in the context of the British state and historically, if you're looking at Corbett, the British Empire. So Britain is a global maritime power. It thinks about controlling the ocean 
which is essential for its own security, both the security of the home and overseas possessions, but also of critical economic routes which supply food, raw materials, and keep industry flourishing. Essentially, Britain has to command the sea in order to be safe and to be able to prosper and raise the money to fight wars. It therefore has to prioritize its resources, and that resource prioritization has to be towards the sea. With command of the sea, Britain will not lose a war because it's insular. And the, the experience, as Corbett analysed it, of the Napoleonic era shows that the Great War for the British is a war in which they were entirely excluded from Western Europe for long periods of time. And yet they survived and prospered behind the maritime strategic posture and used their army not as a continental territorial force, but as projection force. And the British Army's role in these long wars is to secure critical maritime positions. It conquers islands, it conquers overseas territory, it holds critical naval bases like Lisbon. Wellington's Peninsula campaign is, is all about securing Lisbon and stopping the French using it as a strategic base. It expands into something else as the Napoleonic Empire begins to crumble. But as long as the British hold Lisbon, they've actually secured that objective. So that's what the army is for. And it's making sure that the people who are driving strategy, admirals, generals, but above all statesmen, understand that balance. Strategy for Britain, the way of war, has to be from the sea. It has to be sea-based, and it has to be about maintaining that sea control. And the decisions about where to allocate resources, where to apply force, have to do that. And it's critical because Britain is a relatively small power with a relatively small population and resource base. And so it has to maximize advantage. It has to seek asymmetric edge over its rivals. And it does that by maximizing the power of maritime strategy. And the key positive in all of that is you use your command of the sea to attack the enemy. And the big battleground for the British at sea isn't fighting, it's actually the law. What is the law of economic warfare? Are we allowed to stop enemy merchant ships? Yes. What about neutral merchant ships carrying goods between different places and into? So it's about creating a legal regime, which your Navy can then uphold in a legal fashion, which can degrade, weaken, and ultimately destroy the enemy's economy. And in the Napoleonic Wars, there's a brilliant example of this. It's a war that nobody bothers to look at. Britain and Russia are at war from 1807 to 1811. There's almost no fighting, hardly anybody gets killed, and the Russians lose very badly. Their economy is destroyed. And the reason they stand a fight with Napoleon in 1812 is because that's better than going bankrupt and collapsing. And so the British way of war is not going to march on Moscow, but it is going to bring St. Petersburg to heel. It's going to impact on the way that other powers operate. And in the Crimean War, 40 years later, exactly the same thing happens. The Russian economy is targeted and it goes down very quickly. It's not fighting that wins the Crimean War, it's the economy. And so the British have a way of war which is not about massed army warfare. It's about very particular senses of what is critical and what is not critical. So when Napoleon's finally defeated, what the British are doing is creating a European state system that they don't need to prop up creating a system that should have its own internal balancing mechanisms, that the great powers of Europe should basically be able to put themselves in positions where no one of them is dominant. But just in case any one of them does become dominant, the British then write in that nobody's allowed to have Belgium 
because Belgium is where you invade Britain from. All successful invasions of Britain need to shell estuary. They need to come up through that secure waterway where you can collect your invasion fleet. You can't invade from the coast of France. It's too exposed. You have to come through the Belgian territory. That's why the British are at war with the French for so long, between 1793 and 1814. It's all about Belgium. And that's why Napoleon is driving up the main road to Antwerp when he's met at Waterloo. That battle is a maritime strategy battle. That's about Britain stopping Napoleon, reopening that great can of worms about possibility of invasion and securing this territory, which gives him a massive strategic advantage. And Wellington knows this because he's been critical in negotiating those deals that set up the new situation where Belgium and Holland are united with a British security guarantee as part of the Vienna settlement. So British strategy is very much about empire. It's about overseas territory. It's about command of the sea. And it's not about mass continental warfare. And this makes it deeply ironic when people like Basil Littlehart, who's an infantry tactician and a veteran of the Western Front, start writing about something which he fundamentally does not understand. We know this because in his archive, which we actually have at King's in our archive centre, is all the correspondence that he used to write his work on the British way of warfare. It's letters from Admiral Sir Herbert Richmond, who was Corbett's intellectual successor, his legatee, and also a longstanding friend. Richmond is the man who picks up Corbett's legacy and continues to advance it after Corbett's sudden death. He's also the son of Corbett's best friend. So this is a familial relationship. It's an intellectual relationship. They both see this important role of maritime strategy. And if you read what Richmond is writing from 1922 onwards, he's marketing Corbett's intellectual legacy. His last great book, Statesman and Sea Power, the Ford Lectures at Oxford during the Second World War, it's essentially refreshing Corbett's legacy, doing the things that Corbett died too soon to do in terms of carrying it through to the end of the First World War and beyond, and delivering it up and saying, no, you need to see this. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we operate. And with the experience of 1940-41 live in the background, the British way of warfare looks much stronger. Little Hart is using it to avoid a continental commitment. But of course, the British way of warfare is not continentally committed. Britain is going to be an ally of continental powers. It's going to be a balancer. It's going to help maintain the balance, but it is not going to fight to impose balance because it's simply not possible to do that. So it's about building coalitions. It's about creating opportunities in which Britain can secure its objectives without having to make binding commitments to European situations, which may turn out to be very negative. So you'll see the British constantly working with partners, but not for very long. The British diplomacy is never going to be a marriage. It's always going to be a fairly short-term relationship. It's going to be a case-by-case who do we work with in order to solve this problem in this part of Europe? And next week, we'll be working with somebody else somewhere else in Europe to solve a different problem. So it's not a binding commitment. And that's why you see Britain so averse to binding alliances right the way through the 19th century. When Corbett is writing this, Britain has not been in a binding alliance with the European power since 1815. So it sounds to me like Sir Julian Corbett was quite the iconoclast who was able to bring together a number of factors that have allowed him to have quite the legacy in terms of British strategic thinking and this understanding of the British way of war. So maybe you should take us into a little bit more detail about 
who Julian Corbett actually was. Because if I remember correctly, he had actually quite an eclectic mix of professions from barrister to writer of historical fiction. So tell us, who was he? Julian Corbett was born in 1854. He was the son of an architect who rapidly became a very successful property developer in southwest London. And while he was still in short trousers, the family went from being well off to being very rich. And they moved up through the levels of middle class prosperity in Britain very swiftly. So he grows up in a privileged society. He grows up in a large family. He's the second son. There are five children altogether. They're liberals in the political sense. His father is Charles James Corbett, which is a clear reference to, to Charles James Fox. And Corbett is a liberal. His politics are liberal. And unlike so many people who write on war and strategy, particularly in that period, he's a civilian right the way through. He never wears that uniform. So he's not a social conservative. He's not uniformed. He's not impacted by the constraints of that kind of career. He's quite clearly intellectually very sophisticated. He has a short run at a school, which gets him into Cambridge. He then gets a first in his law degree at Trinity Cambridge. So he's in the A stream. He's right up there. He qualifies at the bar very quickly. He practices for some time, but the life of a junior barrister is not hugely interesting. You'd be tramping around the country representing fairly small beer claims. His elder brother ran the family business, which was largely investments. They were unbelievably wealthy and they lived on the proceeds of global economic activity. Corbett never had to work. So every day I spent writing about him, I realized that I envied him hugely, the freedom that his family wealth gave him. But he had a sense of purpose. He had a mission. He understood that it was his social responsibility to use his skills, which were clearly very significant, in the service of his family, his community, his country, and the wider progress of the empire in which he was born and across much of which he traveled. When his father died, he didn't carry on with the legal business. He ran the family estate out in Southwest London. He traveled and he wrote. And his four novels, which his previous biographer dismissed as unsuccessful, they were in fact very successful. They went through multiple editions and they're well worth reading as an example of the sophisticated end of historical and imaginative fiction. One of his books is set in an imaginary English outpost in the south of Morocco, and its main reference point is a picture by Edward Byrne Jones. Corbett knows all the leading artists of the day, and he knows the picture he's writing about. You know, this is a man who is very well read, very well connected, and he realizes ultimately that he's really got nothing else to say with fiction. He's commissioned to write Short Life of Francis Drake by the Macmillan Publishing family. They're personal friends and neighbors. They know he can write, so they ask him to write. He enjoys it hugely. He over-researches what's meant to be a short book. He delivers an over-length manuscript and realizes that he probably is a historian. At that point, he's recruited by Sir John Lawton, the great King's College history professor who founded the Navy Records Society and created modern naval history as a key asset in the development of naval thinking. Lawton recognizes Corbett as a fellow enthusiast, but also a man with tremendous talent. And from that point on, Corbett is on a track. He's going to become the naval historian. 1896, he starts working on his first great book about the Tudor Navy. And from that point on, he moves seamlessly through being the naval historian 
to being the Navy's educator, the teacher of history and strategy on the Navy's senior officer war course from 1902 onwards, writing position papers for Admiral Fisher from 1902, promoting his educational, strategic and technological reforms. He works extensively for the Committee of Imperial Defence. He's a member of leading London think tanks like the Coefficients. He's sent to Canada to represent the Admiralty at the Tercentenary of Quebec to see if the Canadians are interested in having a Navy. And the answer is no, unlike the Australians. And by 1914, when the war breaks out, he is right at the heart of the way Britain thinks about war strategy and policy. And the cabinet that takes Britain to war in August 1914, several members of that are close personal friends and readers of his books. We know that. Haldane, Secretary of State for War, read his great book about the Seven Years' War. And that is the driving agenda behind the creation of the British Expeditionary Force. The idea that Britain needed an expeditionary army as part of a maritime or British strategy, not a continental mass army of conscripts, but a relatively mobile, deployable, high-quality army to be inserted in the way that Britain had always used its army in the past. When that becomes something completely different in 1915-16, it's a clear sign that politicians haven't understood what's going on and have let the soldiers run the show. How can toilet training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is Beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of the Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith, Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change, and my old friend, Jamie Oliver. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. And what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. 
Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM. So what other aspects of Corbett's work? Because it sounds like he's moved from a writer of novels through to being one of Britain's lead, well, Britain's leading naval strategist, to say the least, and and someone who has great influence in terms of the decision-making process. What other aspects of his work influence the campaigns of the First World War? Corbett has consulted on a range of things, usually after the fact. For example, when Churchill puts forward the Dardanelles campaign, which is what you end up doing as First Lord of the Admiralty if you've thrown away the expeditionary force by allowing it to march into the middle of France, and you have to come up with a purely naval offensive operation. You know, this is what's wrong with the Dardanelles. It's not a target you can take from the sea. You have to have that combined operation. Corbett is immediately called in to writing the position papers that persuade Kitchener to release troops. So the Gallipoli phase wouldn't have happened without Corbett. Fisher isn't hugely enthused by the whole operation anyway. He's looking to send a fleet into the Baltic, and Corbett writes the paper on that. Corbett is also writing high-grade propaganda, dealing with German and American complaints about the British use of maritime economic warfare, what the Germans call navalism, line that the Americans pick up and complain that the British are basically getting in the way of them trading with the Germans. That's part of war. And Corbett writes the serious propaganda. He's first of all countering what the Germans are saying, and then increasingly countering what the Americans are saying. His last two big propaganda essays are actually published in New York. They're not even published in England because the entire audience is American. They're not translated. They're not for any other audience. And when Woodrow Wilson gives in about freedom of the seas in 1920, he quotes Corbett. So Corbett has a huge impact on the ability of Britain to preserve the palladium of British power isn't a big navy. It's the legal ability to use it to destroy other people's economies. That's what the British fight for. And if you look at the Congress of Vienna, if you look at the Treaty of Ghent with the Americans in 1814, the key stipulation of those treaties is that this issue will not be discussed. The British position will not be contested. So when Americans tell you that they won the War of 1812, you have to ask why they allowed the British to persist in simply excluding the single most important issue they'd been complaining about before the war. They excluded it from the whole discussion. It wasn't mentioned. The British said, if you mention that, we're going home. And the war continues. I didn't know that at all. That's fascinating, Andrew. So understanding that the law is so important in British strategy, you then begin to appreciate how you need Corbett to write the strategy. His legal background enabled him to grapple with these issues in ways that other strategists simply weren't doing. So his take on the Hague Conference, his take on the Declaration of London, his view of how blockade would have to work, this is very sophisticated stuff. And when the Americans raise freedom of the seas at the Versailles Conference, who writes the Admiralty Position Paper? Well, Corbett does. Why? Because the first sea lord, Sir Rosalind Weems, an old friend and close colleague, has asked him to do this. 
because Corbett has seen what the Admiralty had put together and dismissed it as rubbish and went home and wrote the papers over the weekend. So this is a man who has these abilities. He sees it as his responsibility to pick up this challenge and to work with it, to meet the needs of the state and to use this astonishing range of talents that he has. The other thing to emphasize about Corbett right the way through this period is he understands, and John Lawton begins this process, that in order for the Navy to take history seriously, history has to be serious. So Lawton was happy to use the word scientific to describe the history he was selling because the Navy was a scientific organization and they would like a scientific version of the past. Uh, Lawton and Corbett didn't think history was a science, but they knew the Navy would like it to be one, so they used that language. Lawton persuades the Navy to take history seriously. Corbett then proceeds to make academic historians, who are a relatively new breed, take naval history seriously. In 1913, the International Congress of Historical Sciences, the big history meeting, turns up in London. Corbett got himself on the organizing committee, and he insisted that for the first time there be a set of lectures on naval and military history. Simple request, but he was able to get that through the British Academy and the Royal Historical Society. He organized all of the naval meetings. The lectures were conducted in the lecture theater of the Royal United Services Institute on Whitehall, and they were chaired by very senior soldiers and sailors. The naval lectures were mostly chaired by the first sea lord, Prince Louis of Battenberg, who was a long-standing personal friend of Corbett. And Corbett organized the group of naval papers as a textbook of what naval history was in 1913 and how it should be developed for the use of the Navy. And it was published in 1914, just before the war breaks out. This is his intellectual manifesto. We have to be in two camps. We have to deliver what the Navy needs, but we have to have the credibility, the intellectual authority, not of the scientific historians, but of history as a discipline. If history takes naval history seriously, we can market it to the Navy. If we can't do that, naval officers will continue to be obsessed with new technology and naval gazing into the future. We have to get this discipline right. And this is Corbett's great contribution to make the Navy think about the past as a way of understanding the future. So Corbett isn't writing about the past. He's writing about how the past informs the present and the future and shapes the way that the Navy will have to do business going forward. And true to form, this influence continues long after the First World War and into the Second. Was he not um, one of the official historians of British strategy during the First World War? Yes. When the war breaks out, Corbett is just finishing a book about the Russo-Japanese War. Study in Maritime Strategy. It's based on Russian and particularly Japanese materials. And he's been working in the Admiralty and with the Committee of Imperial Defense to produce this massive two volume study, which undermines the idea that Japan is just an Asian version of Britain by stressing that Japan is actually a continental military power. It demonstrates how maritime strategy had shaped that conflict and how it enabled Japan to win. This was commissioned from him. Nobody else in the country was thought capable of actually doing this. It's probably a correct judgment. Unfortunately, the book doesn't appear until the last few days before the war breaks out. So nobody gets the chance to read this and think about you know, the implications of it. But that means he's inside the Admiralty building. He has an office in the Admiralty building. He has an office in the Committee of Imperial Defense just down the road. So he's right in the heart of the machine. And as soon as the idea of an official history project comes alive, he gets 
picked up and everybody says, look, this is the man to do this job. So Corbett not only directs the writing of naval operations, which is British grand strategy in the First World War and naval operations, it's the strategic overview. In World War II, we get the grand strategy volumes, but all the grand strategy of the First World War official history is in naval operations. But he's also driving the whole project so he's picking the authors for all the other volumes. He's shaping what the other volumes look like. So the army official history volumes, which are numerous, are dreadfully dull, tactical and low-level operational studies. They're not strategic at all. This is what the army's doing on a day-to-day basis. And they're the very antithesis of what Corbett thinks official history should be, which is analytical, strategic and geared towards the higher level of warfare. You know, He's not interested in tactical engagements not interested in what this regiment did on this day of the Battle of the Somme, because the Battle of the Somme has to be read strategically to learn lessons. The tactical lessons don't belong in an official history. They belong in a lessons learned pamphlet for the army to consume, which the army is doing. And writing it up after the event, and in the case of the 1918 campaign, writing it up after the Second World War is an exercise in futility. Nobody's going to read about how the First World War was won on the Western Front in 1948. They've got other things to think about. So it's got to be timely. It's got to be targeting that audience of senior officers who need to think about these things. That's who Corbett is writing for, statesmen, senior officers. And coming to this now as a practicing academic, I think one of the advantages I've had is that I have been working with the military over the years and get a sense of the very different challenges you face working with different audiences. You know, your teaching has to be geared towards the people who are receiving it. If you're not delivering what they want, you're not doing your job properly. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. But you said that his writings, his work, start to influence statesmen and key policymakers. Does his work shape Churchill's conduct and decision-making during the Second World War? So Churchill and Corbett is a very strange story. You would imagine that the first Lord of the Admiralty, a man who really does think about strategy and has certainly a sense of what British warfare is and will write about it extensively, both in his own day and that of his great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough. They are invariably opposed to each other. Corbett is thinking about maritime strategy at the highest level. Churchill is invariably thinking about land operations. He remains a hussar subaltern to the end of his days. He's infused by the continent. It's Churchill who persuades the cabinet to send the BEF to join the French fighting line. It's not Asquith. It's not Gray. It's not any of the others. It's Churchill. So we have the man who's leading the Navy, throws away the Navy's strike force before the war has even begun. And there's nothing can be done about it because it's a room full of generals, four politicians and one admiral. Churchill starts, he persuades everybody else, game is done. When the official history gets going, Churchill realizes that Corbett is far too smart not to have noticed what's been going on. And he's petrified that Corbett will crucify his reputation. And Corbett had the means to do that and the ability, but he doesn't. However, Churchill managed to block the publication of volume one of the official history for 12 months. He wanted it to be stopped. Then he wanted it just to be publishing the documents. And eventually, Corbett won that argument, as he won all the arguments he ever started. And the book is published. But for the rest of his life, Churchill denigrated Corbett. He mocked him. In the 1930s, he referred to that poor little man who wrote the official history. 
Corbett was physically slight. And by the time Churchill was working with him at the end of the First World War, he was in very poor health as well. So the remarks were in very poor taste. And he continued to plough a very different furrow. And I would see Churchill as what happens when you have enthusiasm not guided by intellect. Churchill ended up on the winning side in the Second World War for reasons which had quite a lot to do with other people who did understand what British strategy was and how British warfare worked. So I think Churchill gets a lot of credit for things which he had no responsibility for. He turns up as prime minister and almost immediately Britain is forced to fight a very British war. Everybody else has surrendered and the British have no option but to do what Corbett says. That's not Churchill making a clever choice. That's Churchill just going with the punches and saying, well, you know, that's what we have to do. This was ingrained British strategy by then. This was the British way of war by this point. And of course, the first controversial thing Churchill does after the collapse of France is Merzel Kabir. And Merzel Kabir is the British attack on Copenhagen in 1807. It's exactly the same thing. And that's the attack that Jackie Fisher constantly threatened the Germans with. He said, I'm going to Copenhagen the high seas fleet. That's what he meant. Not Nelson's battle. But 1807, when they took the whole city and stripped the dockyard, that's what's going on there. So Churchill is forced. This is Churchill who's been trying to keep the Western Front going. He's been begging the French to carry on. He's been trying to bribe them to carry on fighting because he can't think of another way of doing the job. And it fails catastrophically. And he ends up then reverting to what needs to be done. And for as long as his strategic advisors were able to keep him under control, British strategy proceeds in a more intelligent way in the Second World War, because this huge continental incubus has been removed and Britain doesn't rejoin the continent as an army fighting power until we have the Russians on board, the Americans on board and the Canadians on board. So when we get back into Northwest Europe, we are not providing half the fighting strength anymore. We are providing a, you know, a significant but much smaller contribution, which is entirely appropriate. So bring us right up to date, Andrew. We live in a world where we have two brand new aircraft carriers within the Royal Navy. Does Corbett and his understanding of the British way of war continue to shape the British understandings of geopolitics and strategy making today? A simple answer to that is yes, because what he said in 1911 in some principles of maritime strategy, suitably updated, still persists. Britain is not a global imperial power, but it is globally engaged. It has global relationships. And the events of 2021, the progress of the carrier through the Indian Ocean, doing operations with allies there, with India, moving through Singapore into the Philippine Sea, uh, joint carrier operations with the Americans and the Japanese, then the signing of the nuclear submarine deal with Australia and the United States. Britain is able to exert influence globally. It's not able to exert quite the influence people imagine it did in Corbett's day, but that's because they don't understand just how limited British power was, even in Corbett's day. Britain doesn't have the military might to change the fate of continents. It's never tried to do that. It's always been involved in balancing, in minimizing risk, in finding ways of shaping the context so they suit Britain better. And if we're less powerful vis-a-vis -vis the other major powers in 2022, that doesn't mean we're weak. That means that we've got to make even more clear choices. So we don't need forces that other people already have. We need to be very good at defending our vital interests, which funnily enough are maritime trade and putting ourselves in a position to use the great weapon of maritime strategy, which is economic. 
Uh, what are we threatening the Russians with over the Ukraine? We're threatening them with the polite version of an economic blockade. We're going to take away all of your assets, break your economy, and you will have to give up. And Russians know this, and they know the history of Russia, so they know how this works. Russia is not able to function in a hostile economic blockade context, because it depends, as it always has, on exporting large amounts of fairly low-value goods, and you can turn the tap off. We might run out of gas in Western Europe, but the Russians would run out of money and their economy would collapse. So things don't change. The reasons why Britain was able to function in the way that it did in Corbett's day, they persist. Britain is not the same power vis-a-vis other powers that it was, but it is still a significant power. And it is the only one of the non-superpowers that has a genuine capacity to operate globally. Andrew, thank you so much for your time, for bringing this all the way from before the First World War through to the present day. You have to tell us, what is the name of the book and where can people buy it? The book is called The British Way of War, Sir Julian Corbett and the Battle for a National Strategy. In many ways, it's a book of two fundamental things. It's about what is British warfare, but it's about Corbett because Corbett is the man who captures and processes that. And one of the ironies of so much of the writing about the British way in warfare, starting with Little Heart, but proceeding right down to the present, is that it's written by people with a continental mindset and they ignore, literally ignore Corbett. He is not referenced. Or when he is, he's referenced in ways which are not particularly sophisticated. Little Hart was never going to engage with Corbett. And we know that he didn't read Corbett. Uh, so Michael Howard, who critiqued Little Hart's version, confessed to his students in Oxford in the 1970s that he really didn't understand Corbett. And Sir Michael was a great historian of continental strategic thinking and operations. But his ability to handle the maritime dimension, well, he just wasn't engaged. He was a guardsman. He fought his way through Italy. He did. And so many of the historians who've written about what British war is have started from the assumption that the army is at the centre of this. They've read the German books and think they apply to the British. and They don't. Corbett's genius is to take Clausewitz and make him a maritime strategist. Corbett is the most sophisticated analyst of Clausewitz of the early 20th century. Everybody else is trying to make Clausewitz do what they want. Corbett understands that he enables you to do what you need to do because you need a national interpretation. You need to fit your requirements into the Clausewitzian structure. And some principles of 1911 is Clausewitz as maritime strategy. He uses Clausewitz's concept of limited war to explain how maritime strategy works. You don't march on Paris or Berlin. You break their economy. You don't need to mobilize a mass army because no right-thinking liberal would mobilize a mass army. Conscripting Englishmen, that, that's just illegal. You can't do that. You know, you've got to rely on this alternative form of power. So Corbett does this, and so much of the writing about a British way of war thinks it's about fighting, and it's not. It thinks about It's certainly not about fighting on land. It's about how Britain operates as a grand strategic player, and that is from the sea. Andrew, such a, a timely reminder. I urge everyone out there to go and buy the book and you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.